Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, The Daily Signal's White House reporter. This week, given the intrigue with the upcoming confirmations likely to be held for President Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, we're talking about the most controversial moments in Supreme Court history. And we'd like to make a distinction here at the beginning of the show. We're not talking about the most controversial Supreme Court cases. Uh, There's actually another great podcast with the Heritage Foundation called SCOTUS 101, where they do more straight legal analysis. We're going to focus more on the the biggest uh, political and personal controversies that have happened on the court over its very long history, which is uh, surprisingly, there has been a lot of major incidents on the Supreme Court. Going back very far, in fact, all the way back to George Washington. Uh, Washington nominated a uh, distinguished South Carolina politician and jurist named John Rutledge to be the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court upon the retirement of Chief Justice John Jay, who was legendary in his own right. Uh, Washington made the made a recess appointment when the Senate was out of session in July of nineteen or I'm sorry, seventeen ninety five, and then nominated him that following December. Uh, Rutledge had previously served as an associate justice to the high court uh, from 1789 to 1791, but stepped down to serve on the South Carolina Supreme Court, which would be pretty unusual today (laughs) for someone to do that. But uh, in those days, states were highly regarded. Um, The politics came into play after Rutledge complicated his confirmation chances by uh, delivering a speech attacking the Jay Treaty. That was a treaty between the U.S. and Britain that kept the two uh, at peace for a time, at least, um, uh, post-Revolutionary War. And uh, that that's despite the fact that Washington and the Senate had uh, supported that treaty. So uh, one senator claimed that, quote, after the death of his wife, his mind was so much deranged. Another senator said that his mind was unsettled and that he's becoming insane. That was kind of the attack. And you can kind of imagine these types of a political attacks on people today. Uh, by a vote of 14 to 10, you had a much smaller Senate at the time, that the Senate rejected President Washington's choice to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, Rutledge was essentially, since he was a recess appointed, he was essentially the only guy to actually be re- kicked off the high court. Uh, he actually twice after this uh, attempted suicide after the rejection. So there might have been some truth to those rumors and attacks about his um, mental condition. It really is an interesting story. Of course, it's uh, we're going to talk about a little later in the show. You know, the first, I guess you could say, borking in Supreme Court uh, history, that was sort where of a borking, right? uh, obviously a, a you know political nominee, a guy who made some political statements, got himself in trouble with the administration because he went against the Jay Treaty, which of course President Washington uh, ended. Up backing very strongly and actually got Rutledging this... doesn't roll off the tongue as well as Borking. Though, that, so. That's right, Rutledging. It's interesting. Rutledge is uh, kind of a forgotten founder of the United States, probably partially because of the way his career ended, and you know, kind of very sadly, he mm-hmm. he became well known in his time. People used to laugh at him, make fun, call him the dictator because of both his imperious personality and the fact that during the American Revolution in South Carolina, he became. Basically, the dictator of South Carolina, the, the legislature there gave him such extreme powers that people called him a dictator during the war. So he was very prominent individual. I mean, even people like Alexei de Tocqueville thought that he was the prime mover in creating the United States Constitution. So a very big deal until he got torpedoed at the Supreme Court. 
and basically his his whole career went into a tailspin and ended fairly tragically for what is essentially one of the great men of our history. So, uh, quite a tailspin after the first uh, the first real borking in our That's country's right, right. history. Right, and and then um, along came uh, under John Adams didn't have any controversies in his administration. But we did have uh, in Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, uh, he sort of pushed an impeachment of uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase, who was a also a Washington appointee, a Federalist. And uh, one of the interesting things about this, and I wrote about it in my book, Tainted by Suspicion, but uh, this happened during the vice presidency of uh, Aaron Burr, who, as president of the Senate, presided over the Senate trial of Samuel Chase as a trial judge. Uh, the House of Representatives impeached Chase uh, for judicial misconduct in March of 1804. That was an election year, so there was a lot of politics behind this impeachment. Uh, Chase was a Federalist judge, uh, and the uh, um, Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans accused him of bias against defendants charged with violating the Alien and Sedition Act. Uh, that was sort of basically a censorship uh, of the press act in those days. Um, re- read a passage from my book about this and a, a little bit about how uh, Burr presided over the Senate trial. Uh, says, um, the Federalists didn't like the way the vice president treated Chase. Uh, pleasing to his party compatriots and the Jeffersonian Republicans, Vice President Burr frequently interrupted the aged Justice Chase, who actually broke into tears. Also, Burr lectured the Senate on proper judicial etiquette, scolding some for walking in the Senate chamber during the witness testimony or eating apples while the trial was occurring. Senators on both sides of the aisle resented being lectured about decorum from a man who recently killed a former cabinet official in an illegal duel. And what I'm referring to there is, of course, Alexander Hamilton. So, uh, but in the end, in that case, only two articles gained a slim majority. That's uh, short of a two thirds needed, and the Senate voted unanimously to acquit on the other articles. So, you, you know, was... this is really uh, this is really one of the big moments in American history. Not a lot is talked about this case, but this is the first time that the court was really seen as. A political institution. Obviously, Thomas Jefferson, who was a, you could say, a Jeffersonian Republican, uh, going against this Federalist on the court. Of course, I, I think there were some legitimate concerns regarding Justice Chase with his very much accusations of being erratic on the court, of being a, an alcoholic and a drunk and maybe uh, doing some inappropriate things. He was a very aggressive justice. So there were certainly some, there was certainly some justification for saying that uh, Justice Chase was not exactly the best justice. The idea, though, that a party could go after a Supreme Court justice and try to impeach him for political reasons, which I think really became a big part of the trial against Justice, justice Chase, especially because the man who presided over the kind of questioning the prosecution, so to speak, John Randolph of Roanoke, was a very extreme Jeffersonian Republican, didn't have a lot of experience legally, was not a lawyer, and at himself acted very much erratically during this whole case. He was himself suffering from some health issues and made it, I think a lot of people at the time said a very poor case against Chase, who did have some problems with this record. And so I think ever since then, there's been a certain amount of trepidation over trying to go after and impeach uh, members who are on the Supreme Court because of the appearance of it looking political, which is something that the Jefferson really got tattooed with after this whole thing. 
Yeah, it, it's well, it hasn't actually happened again. Uh, William Rehnquist wrote a great book, Grand Inquest, about the Chase impeachment and the Johnson impeachment, which uh, the first two really big impeachments that we had. And then, of course, Rehnquist ended up presiding over the Clinton impeachment himself. So. Absolutely. So, yeah, certainly a, a big moment in, in Supreme Court history and American political history. So we're going to fast forward a little bit here. Uh, we're going to fast forward to, I mean, I think this is one of the by far one of the biggest moments in Supreme Court history. Uh, the, the the If you've ever heard of the old phrase, a stitch in time saves nine, uh, I think it's maybe not a little well known these days, but it actually refers very specifically to the time that President Franklin Roosevelt attempted to pack the Supreme Court. He tried to actually bump up the number of justices that would be on the Supreme Court from nine, which I think we traditionally hold today, to 15, which is uh, which is legal uh, in the Constitution. There is nothing that says how many justices we can have. Our early history, we had somewhere between six and actually 10 at one point. However, the tradition had been very well established by the time of Roosevelt's presidency, and uh, FDR, who was very much upset that the Supreme Court had ruled against a lot of the New Deal legislation, especially against his signature program, the National Recovery Administration, which was uh, really a government takeover of the American economy. That one got shot down nine to nothing. But a lot of other legislation was losing five to four at the Supreme Court. And especially there were four, you could say, conservative justices on the court, the so-called Four Horsemen, uh, Justices Pierce Butler, James Clark McReynolds, George Sutherland, and uh, Willis Van Devanter, uh, upheld essentially the Four Horsemen. And of course, uh, the Chief Justice Charles Evan Hughes was kind of a little bit of a wild card in there, sided a lot with the conservative majority, and really torpedoed a lot of uh, FDR's, as well, I would say, some of his most egregious legislation. But this caused FDR to take well, some very extreme measures to try to – he had this whole plan to what he called a a reform of the Supreme Court, uh, try to bump that number up to 15, say that, well, we need more young people on the court. It's a problem that they're so old. It's interesting hearing all these arguments because I think we're, we're starting to hear a little bit of that today, Fred. I, I've noticed especially with the whole Kavanaugh you know, confirmation and, and the questions about that, you're seeing a lot of – Questions from uh, websites like Vox.com saying that, well, maybe we should re-explore this court packing scheme. But it seems like something that there's been a little resistance to, I think, from, I think, just the American political spectrum. What do you think, Fred? Yeah, yeah. I I don't think – it doesn't seem like something that's actually going to come up with mainstream Democrats yet, at least. But uh, but it's been, like, percolating out there among the left-wing websites, so – Strange. Of course, Vox doesn't believe in the American Revolution either, so they don't, they don't think there should be a Supreme Court to start with. Uh, right. The Vox actually ran a recent article on the four, on, uh, just before the 4th of July saying that the American Revolution was a mistake. So maybe Vox is not the best to trust on issues of constitutional uh, questions. Uh, but it is an interesting uh, moment in our history. And, of course, there is the question about you know the size and scope of the Supreme Court. I mean, it's not set at nine justices. It has been become a tradition. And FDR, of course, broke uh, an earlier tradition, which was that the president would only serve through uh, two terms. He broke that, he shattered it, and of course it 
it, it brought upon a constitutional amendment to stop the president from running for more terms of that. So, you know, obviously a, a big moment in history. And it was big politically, too, because the going back to the whole stitch in time saves nine uh, quote, it actually stems to the fact that some of the judges, at least many believe, changed some of the decisions and became more favorable toward the New Deal when FDR threatened the court. So it, it, the, the raw politicization of the Supreme Court from the president worked to a certain extent and pushing pressuring the Supreme Court where it didn't work is with the American people and the, even the Democrat-controlled Senate uh, balked at FDR's uh, designs on increasing its size and uh, FDR definitely uh, his his influence waned at least in domestic politics at that point because it seemed like such a brazen attack on American institutions. Mm, right. Um, and jumping ahead uh, from FDR to LBJ actually uh, one of uh, he, one of his nominees uh, and very close advisor, um, I, I, I refer to him as actually dishonest Abe, uh, <laughs> Lyndon Johnson, uh, longtime uh, sort of political crony and D.C. super lawyer, Abe Fortas, was uh, nominated and confirmed to the high court in 1965. Uh, Abe Fortas was pretty much a 30-year uh, companion with uh, LBJ, uh, but Fortas got into a problem. He supplemented his uh, high court salary by taking money from a private foundation that was established by a convicted stock swindler named Lewis Wolfson. Uh, Fortas took a $20,000 annual retainer fee from the Wolfson Foundation, and Fortas arranged for his wife to keep receiving payments each year after his death. Uh, For the payment, uh, for the annual payment, a setting Supreme Court justice offered uh, legal advice and counsel to this organization and attended an annual meeting. Wolfson was hoping to get uh, secure, his securities fraud conviction overturned. So having this kind of close connection, both at the judicial branch and indirectly with the president of the United States was also good. Uh, Fortas even actually wrote a letter to the White House promoting two of Wolfson's companies at a time when the companies were under federal investigation, this is while Fortis was on the court, keep in mind. <laughs> um, this was all kind of under wraps. People didn't know so much about it. Uh, but then Johnson pretty much made the mistake in 1968 of nominating Fortis to become the chief justice after uh, Earl Warren retired. And uh, this the, initially the news came out first that – uh, an entirely other matter was happening that uh, Fortis was getting $15,000, which seemed like an excessive amount to just teach a, a law course at an American university. Uh, and that created a Senate filibuster. Uh, journalists started poking around a little bit more, uh, and, and they found out that uh, he was actually getting a lot more. I, I, after that Senate filibuster, Johnson withdrew the nomination to be chief justice, but Fortas was still on the court. When this, uh, when more came out about the $20,000 payment and his close ties with Wolfson, um, he started losing a lot of political support. Uh, threats of impeachment came up. After Johnson was out of office, Fortas actually resigned from the court in May of 1969. And that was really uh, one of the only justice, I think the only justice who's had to resign from the court under a scandal. It does bring up the interesting question, of course, you know, what if Fortas had decided to 
fight it out, essentially, and decided he wanted to stay on the court. I mean, you know, we do have these these rules regarding impeachment, which are sometimes a little open-ended. I mean, mm-hmm. high crimes and misdemeanors is right. the, the bar. What exactly? Called? Now, seemingly, you know, embezzling money or committing fraud, things like that, seems to be at least violate something we consider a misdemeanor. But, of course, you know, a lot of these decisions uh, come down ultimately – to Congress, they come down to right. getting two thirds of the Senate to say no. We need to get rid of this person, which I think very interestingly brings up that's a nice the next segue. case, the next uh, <laughs> yes. impeachment case right. that we had. Uh, which Fred, can can you kind of uh, talk yeah. about that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, this was also uh, the near impeachment of William O. Douglas. Uh, Douglas was actually uh, n- named to the court by FDR, uh, and he was one of the longest serving justices in the history of the court. Uh, It was 1970 when then-House Minority Leader Gerald Ford uh, led a strong push to impeach and remove William Douglas from the Supreme Court. Uh, And although Democrats held a decisive majority in Congress, impeaching a liberal justice nominated by Franklin Roosevelt wasn't entirely out of the question. Douglas had this reputation for being a philander, uh, for having shady financial dealings that were somewhat similar to uh, Abe Fortas, uh, and um, that posed some serious conflicts uh, on the court. Also, yeah. I, I I think one of the other big controversies regarding him is that there was a lot of upset because he actually uh, ordered the stay of execution for the Rosenbergs, right. who, of right, course, right. were very Going famous away, right. uh, spies who essentially gave American nuclear secrets to the Soviets. Uh, which led to them getting nuclear weapons, kind of almost launching the Cold War, really, you could say. So he also mm-hmm. got himself uh, a lot of people upset. Of course, that 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 stay was overruled eventually, but he got himself in a lot of political trouble for ordering that stay of execution, too. So he was very right. controversial uh, justice, for sure. Yeah, yeah, right, right, for a long time, and, and a very, very left-wing justice. Um, uh, during uh, um, Ford's, one of Ford's most famous comments was actually during this impeachment push, uh, and I think we may have used this during our our show on impeachment, but I'll, I'll bring it up again here. Uh, Gerald Ford said in 1970, long before he was close to the presidency, he said, an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers to be at a given moment in history. Uh, conviction results from whatever offense or offenses two thirds of the other body, the Senate, considers to be sufficiently serious to require removal of the accused from office. Uh, and ironically, of course, Gerald Ford became president after <laughs> Richard Nixon's resignation. So, uh, But that is a very important point he makes. I think we, we did discuss this on our impeachment show that uh, impeachment is has been a contentious question in American history and what exactly defines high crimes and misdemeanors. And Ford is correct. I mean, ultimately, it is up to the vote of the House of Representatives, a majority vote there, and two thirds of a vote in the Senate. So, I mean, that's it was a correct statement. I obviously became right. particularly controversial after the whole Nixon yes, fiasco. Yeah, of course, <laughs> uh, yeah, right, right. And and Ford did have some uh, explicit charges. He he uh, brought about brought up that uh, Douglas had taken twelve thousand dollars and what looked like shady kickbacks from hotel owners. Uh, he also uh, said that Douglas's lifestyle was quote. Uh, defined by or defy the conventions and convictions of decent Americans, which is uh, <laughs> that that's probably questionable. I mean, his moral conduct, whether that was a impeachable offense, if it had been, um, I 
think you might have seen Maxine Waters. If she could invent a time machine, she might have gone back in time and tried to <laughs> try, tried to push that as an impeachable offense. Who knows? For sure. Um, but um, after a seven-month investigation, though, the House Judiciary Committee determined there were no grounds for impeachment of Douglas. So we kind of come to our, I think in modern history, the most famous fiasco at the Supreme Court, the so-called borking, which was the, uh, the thwarting of the nomination of Robert Bork, who was a very, very esteemed conservative uh, jurist, uh, I think really one of the intellectual founders of what you consider modern originalism doctrine. Now he has difference with a lot of other originalists, but he was a very uh, highly regarded uh, jurist who had a, a quite contentious hearing on Capitol Hill. Of course, he was a, a nominee of President Ronald Reagan, but the, the, at the time, the Senate was controlled by Democrats, and it started uh, most, of the, most of the time, especially in the 20th century, Supreme Court justices were merely passed through the Senate. Whatever the president would nominate somebody, the Senate would rubber stamp that, that pick. This was the first time, really, in a very long time, in which there was massive opposition from another political party, where Bork got extreme kind of pushback, especially from one Senator Ted Kennedy, who I think had one of the more famous and many say infamous speeches in Senate history when he wrote he talked about Robert Bork's America, which is this uh, dystopian scene that he portrays. And I'm actually going to read for this because it's so it's so outrageous. Uh, Senator Kennedy said Robert. Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, blacks would sit at segregated church lunch counters, rogue police could break down citizens' doors in midnight raids, school children could not be taught about evolution, writers and artists would be censored at the whim of the government, and the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is often the only protector of the individual rights that are at the heart of our democracy." And so this basically led to the fall of Bork. He was rejected by the Senate ultimately, uh, and uh, I mean incredibly contentious uh, hearings. Uh, President Ronald Reagan actually then had to go and find another uh, candidate who also got well. He didn't get rejected. He actually had to pull himself uh, from nomination, which it's. Kind of interesting today, Judge Douglas Ginsburg, who pulled his own nomination because some reports came out that he had potentially uh, smoked marijuana <laughs> while he was in college and maybe after, which is... Uh, which I th- is- Kind of shocking. Which is <laughs> by, kind of by shocking. today's standards. By, right? by today's standards, maybe that would be seen <laughs> yeah. as is not so controversial. Right. Uh, you know, maybe he you know could say these days that he never inhaled, but <laughs> right. but at those days it was quite controversial that he had admitted this, and so this led to interestingly enough, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who right. recently retired, uh, and led to the nomination now of justice or potential justice Kavanaugh, and of course. We're getting a lot of already, we're seeing a lot of attacks on Kavanaugh's character. We had these kind of reports that came out saying that he spent a lot of money on baseball games, which he promptly paid off, and uh, which is kind of funny, thinking a guy paying a lot of money to go see baseball is a controversial thing. So I think we can kind of expect there to be some, some attacks, especially given the consequence that the Supreme Court now holds in American politics, which you know, people put on a premium. So these these debates often get incredibly heated, uh, like they were in that Bork hearing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the I guess the second major Borking probably happened uh, with uh, 1991. George H. W. Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to the High Court, and uh, we'll 
we'll we'll make this brief uh, because uh, this is a G-rated show. But uh, uh, Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden at the time, uh, was sort of one of the ringleaders in attempting to sink uh, the Clarence Thomas nomination. Anita Hill in that uh, alleged sexual harassment. Uh, Thomas uh, survived and was confirmed. He gave a very strong speech in which he called those allegations a quote high tech lynching and that was uh that was a, a big moment yeah thomas always said even to this day that it was one of the more mortifying moments of his life that you know that the fact that he certainly became a justice on the Supreme court i think one of its i mean really most esteemed members uh still that that stings him i think even to this day that he was attacked in this way interesting that we talked about uh senator ted kennedy being the kind of ringleader of the borkins he was there during the clarence thomas hearings too but had to be a little on the quieter side given right. his History with women, as the the recent Chappaquiddick movie, I think, uh, illustrated quite uh, quite deeply, and of course some accusations of of womanizing. So he was very very quiet during these hearings, but ultimately they did not torpedo Thomas, who got through in the Supreme Court and has been there uh, ever since. So that's one time where uh, somebody got through a, a controversial set of hearings and and escaped it. I think that's about I think that's about it. With the, the, those are all the top. The top uh, controversies in Supreme Court history, uh, certainly, again, if you want to hear more about the actual controversial cases in Supreme Court history, I do suggest you listen to SCOTUS 101, which is the Heritage Foundation's Supreme Court uh Supreme Court co- podcast, which is very extensive, and certainly we'll have much, uh, much more about Brett Kavanaugh and that, that confirmation. And uh, some of the topics we brought up today: uh, impeachment and Chappaquiddick. We have had previous shows on both of those topics so i hope you will check out some of those earlier shows absolutely if you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts you can also check us out on soundcloud stitcher or the daily signal website also take a look at the daily signals facebook page for when we air our next program and if you are further interested in our work check out my twitter at jared stepman and fred's twitter handle at fred lucas wh thanks again for listening You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.